0: So just raise your hand and we will get you one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one. Did you guys know when they hand out these Bibles, they've already got them marked for you to the proper place? So even if you have your Bible, but you can never find the right place, raise your hand. And uh... So anyway, turn to Acts chapter 5. We are going to finish up chapter 5 today. As we've been tracking through the early days of the early church. And as you're turning there, certainly we've all probably heard that expression, go big or go home, right? It's kind of become this kind of a mantra, if you will, in, uh, in popular culture. And the idea, of course, is that we should either do something to the fullest, we should do it in a big way, we should do it all the way, or we shouldn't bother doing it at all. And what I think is interesting about this, you know, the idea is super popular, but nobody seems to be agreed about exactly where it came from. Um, some suggest that it originated kind of in that Southern California surf or skateboarding culture, right? Go big or go home, dude, right? Um, others say that the real origin of go big or go home was that there was a, it was a product slogan back in the 90s for a motorcycle parts company, and it referred to these huge oversized exhaust pipes that you would put on a Harley. Some claim it's actually a military expression that pilots would use saying basically the the more bombs, the longer you stay on target dropping those bombs, the more likely you'll be for a direct hit. It's a phrase that's been adopted by the personal development movements and the self-help movements. I personally think, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, that we could probably credit this quote, or at least we could attribute this lifestyle to any one of these first century apostles because we have been watching them go big, right? Since the spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost back in chapter two. And as we turn today to our text in chapter five, I think we're gonna find one of the best examples yet of this kind of all out approach that the apostles had. We're also gonna see an important kind of a contrast from a couple of the other characters. Uh, Most importantly, we're going to find some points of application, of course, that we can take and employ in our own ministries, and our own lives, as we try to go big for Jesus. Let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless uh, the word this morning. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word, Lord. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives, Lord. uh, We pray, as we do each and every week, that your spirit would be the one who's our teacher today, Lord, that... Uh, the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, that you would give us uh, open ears to hear what your spirit has to say to your church, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you remember when we left off last week? Remember that the apostles had been arrested by the Jewish religious leaders because they were preaching there in the temple courts. They spent the night in jail. They'd been miraculously freed by an angel, and then they returned right back to the temple courts, the same place that they were arrested, and they continued to preach to the people. And then when we left off last in verse 26, it said that then the captain went with the officers "...and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned." So the second arrest of the apostles, this was just inevitable. And it probably wasn't a surprise to anyone, including the apostles. Remember, the Sanhedrin had strictly ordered them to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And they had boldly and they had very publicly ignored that order... And so we see, we pick right up in chapter, uh, in verse 27 of chapter 5, and it says that when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So here they are, dragged once again into these impressive council chambers. And this was a second attempt by the religious leaders to intimidate the apostles with all of the the trappings of their legal and their institutional authority. And yet we have to think that the apostles, knowing how God had just miraculously delivered them, I don't think that they were probably intimidated. I don't think they were even overly impressed with this great gathering of these great men. Instead, I suspect that they were possibly even encouraged by the praise that comes from the high priest when he said, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. What a wonderful indictment. Right? What, a, what an unintentional compliment to the effectiveness of the apostles' ministry and the message of the gospel. They were accomplishing, through the empowering of the Spirit, precisely what Jesus had sent them to do. And they were going big in times of trial. Right? Despite the threats, despite the intimidation, we've been reading that multitudes were being saved. And everyone was taking notice, including these religious leaders. They had been confronted with a very powerful truth that they did not want to face. And that was the truth of Jesus Christ resurrected and alive again. Notice the high priest, two different times in just this one accusation, he purposely avoided even using the name of Jesus did you notice he says this man he says this name and yet the fact is the religious leaders try as they might they could try to avoid the name of Jesus but they couldn't avoid the power of Jesus right it was staring them right in the face and their guilt no doubt was haunting even their hardened hearts. Notice they accused this group of apostles of intending to bring this man's blood upon us. And the the sense there is, look, you're trying to give the people the impression that we're somehow responsible for this man's death. Which is ironic, considering what had these very same leaders just a couple of months before... Back in Pilate's judgment hall, remember when Pilate asked, what shall I do? And these guys were the guys who led the cry, let him be crucified. And then what did they say? Let his blood be on us and on our children. And now they're saying, you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. (laughs) And you know, the truth is, they were absolutely right. Because Peter and the apostles were trying to bring the blood of Jesus upon them, but they were trying to bring it upon them for cleansing and for forgiveness. They were trying to show them that God had made a way even for them through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, a way by which all of their sins and all of their guilt could be washed away if they would just trust in this same Jesus whom they had rejected. They did have a great personal responsibility in sending Jesus to the cross, just like each and every one of us in this room this morning have that same personal responsibility for sending Jesus to the cross. We can't blame the Jews, we can't blame the Romans, It was our sin. It was each of our sins, personally and individually. That's what sent Jesus to the cross. It's like Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that he made him who knew no sin be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the apostles wanted to bring, not condemnation, but they wanted to bring covering, and they wanted to bring the cleansing blood of Jesus Right there to the high priest, right there to the council. Because remember, they had been commissioned to spread the good news to all men. right? Even their enemies and even these men who had ordered them to silence their witness. And now we're pressing them, asking them why they hadn't obeyed. Look what Peter says to them next. In verse 29 it says, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They said, look, we told you before, when you told us before to stop preaching, we told you that we couldn't. We told you that we had to be obedient to God. So here the apostles are going big in obedience to God. And the, their, their response here wasn't their defense. It wasn't a plea for mercy. All it was was a very simple explanation of their actions. Now, in general, the Bible teaches that we should submit to those who are in authority over us. And yet, we also see that submission, at least on a human level, is never absolute. And it's never more important than our submission to God. We should should obey authority, but not when that authority contradicts God. So in effect, all wrapped up in Peter's statement here, he's saying, look, even though you guys have this legislative, even though you have this political authority, the fact remains that there is a higher authority than you, and it's God. And he's the one that's told us to go into all the world. He's the one that told us to preach the gospel to every creature, and we have no other choice than to obey him. So God has placed people in positions of authority in order to maintain peace and in order to maintain order. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13. But if those authorities that the Lord has ordained, when they start to act contrary to him, then we need to submit to him and not to them. So we think about Exodus chapter one, about the midwives in Egypt. They were told to destroy all of the Jewish male children and they refused and we see that God honored them. We think about Rahab in Joshua chapter two, you know, that harlot who hid the spies that had been sent there to scope out the land. She withstood this questioning from the civil authorities and we see that God blessed her and then even included her in the line of the Messiah. We see in, in Daniel chapter three, against the command of the king, we have Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who did not bow down to the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And we see the way that God blessed them and the way that he stood with them there in the fiery furnace. And of course, Daniel himself, Daniel chapter six, he refused to cease from his usual habit of praying three times a day, even though doing so he knew was in direct violation of this law from the king and yet God honored him and of course saved him there in the lion's den. And yet here's the key for us. There are two very important requirements that we need to keep in mind in the event that we're planning somehow to disobey an authority that's placed over us. And that's first of all, we need to make sure We have very clear scriptural authority. So here for the apostles, the angel of the Lord had told them very clearly, go speak in the temple. We know that Jesus had told them already. He commissioned them directly saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the point is that the disciples here weren't just following some sort of a nebulous feeling. They were following the word of God. So we can't simply say, you know, God told me that I could do 75 in this 35, right? We can't simply say, you know, I don't want to obey my parents because what they're saying just doesn't feel right to me. You know, if someone's going to disobey their parents, if someone's going to oppose the authority of their employer, if someone's going to contradict the law of the land, they better have a very clear and a very direct authority from the scriptures that they can stand on in that situation. Now, the other thing that we see throughout the scriptures, in addition to this clear authority of the scriptures, you know, if you're going to disobey someone in authority over you, you need to do it with humility. Because we see here in every case throughout the Bible, Those who said, we can't do this because we're serving a higher authority, they did it in humility. They did it without hostility. They did it without bitterness. And they did it without violence. And they did it understanding that there could very well be consequences. And yet they trusted in the Lord to preserve them and to protect them through those consequences. So you absolutely can disobey your boss at work in obedience to God, but it may cost you your job. But God will be faithful to you and honor your obedience. Here, Peter and the apostles, they were willing to disobey and they were willing to take whatever might come their way. And in fact, notice that rather than relent here. Peter, instead, he sees this as just another divinely ordained opportunity to preach the gospel again to these leaders of Israel. Look how he continues in verse 30. Peter's about to go big with the truth of the gospel. He says in verse 30 that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So again, Peter effectively says we can't help but share the things of God that we've seen and that we've heard and that the Spirit of God has confirmed in our hearts. And notice, Peter doesn't pull any punches here in order to try to save his own skin. He doesn't attempt to appease the anger or to appease the anxiety of these dignitaries. They were guilty before the Lord. They had a debt of sin Personally, they had a debt of sin institutionally, if you will, and they needed to square it up. And so Peter faces them very squarely with their sins. Again, not that they would be condemned, but that they would be saved in turning to God in that personal repentance. Again, Peter says, look, you allowed Jesus Christ to be crucified and hung there on the cross, but God exalted him. And we are not going to back down from this message. Did you notice once again that Peter managed to pack the complete message of the gospel into only two sentences? Amazingly, he includes man's guilt, talks about Jesus whom you murdered. He includes Jesus' death, hanging there on a tree or on a cross. He includes the resurrection of Jesus, that God exalted him to his right hand. And he also includes man's responsibility to respond. Right? He talks about giving repentance to Israel and offering forgiveness of sins. So this is the big message of the gospel. This is the word that we're to bring to people everywhere. You know, the the message of the gospel is that we look there toward the throne of God and that by faith we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. We see him sitting there in majesty in heaven, you know, ever ready to make intercession for us and that through him and through his name, the message of salvation is sent out to the entire world because he is, as Peter says here, he is our savior. Did you know, it's interesting, this is the first time in Peter's preaching that he has used that beautiful title of Savior. In his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter called Jesus Lord and Christ. In his second sermon in chapter three, after the healing of the crippled man, he called Jesus a servant and a prophet. In chapter 4, when he first addressed these religious men, Peter pointed out that Jesus was the stone that they had rejected. And so here, he cuts to the heart of the matter, clearly calling him the Savior. And the word he used would have been a very clear message to the members of this council. Because it was a word at the time, that word Savior was used for physicians who saved people's lives. The word was also used for philosophers who would solve people's problems. The word was used for statesmen who would save people from danger or save them from war. It was even a term that was applied to the emperor. And what I think is beautiful about all of that is that only Jesus Christ is the true and living savior who fills each and every one of those roles. He saves lives, he solves problems, he saves us from danger because only he can rescue us from sin and death and judgment to any and all who trust in him. And he's the only one who can do it because we can't. And this is the part of the gospel over which so many people stumble. It's a hard pill to swallow, but make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's not simply our helper. And there's so many people who believe, you know, their, their kind of philosophy of life is that if we just do our best, that Jesus will jump in and make up the rest. But that's not the gospel at all. Jesus is called the Savior because we need to be saved and because we can't save ourselves. Jesus himself, remember in Matthew 18, he explained to the disciples that the son of man has come to save that which was lost. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? Now everybody wants to have a part in their own salvation. So it's true, there's no question, we have all done our part, right? But we did the sinning, and he does the saving, right? We did the straying, if you will, and he does the seeking. And what that means is that he gets all of the glory, but it also means that we have this glorious message that we can share with the lost because the Savior saved us, right? He sought us out just like he's seeking them out. And I truly believe that that's the message that Peter, through the boldness and through the power of the witness of the Spirit, he's pleading with the council that they would understand. Again, he's announcing that God would still save Israel if these leaders repented. That if these leaders turned from their sins, then the people would follow their example. Through the power of the Spirit, Peter had just very clearly and very briefly explained to them again all of the core ideas of who Jesus was and what he did for us on the cross. And he had shown them how each one of us should respond to Jesus and what he did. And what we see next, the word that Peter spoke cut just like a sword. It cut the rulers to the heart. Look what this says in verse 33. It says that when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill him. The the language Luke actually uses there is graphic and it describes them as being sawn asunder. They were cut in two. So there was this deep conviction by the spirit of God That came upon them through the word of God, and yet once again they hardened their hearts toward God. And instead of yielding to the Spirit and responding in repentance, it's like they steeled their consciences and they stirred up their hatred and they plotted instead. Now they're gonna add sin to sin by plotting to kill the very messengers that had brought them the the message of the grace of God through Jesus. We can only imagine the kind of things that are going through their heads. You know, they're probably thinking, well, who are you to tell us to repent? We don't need this kind of forgiveness. You know, don't blame us for the death of Jesus. Don't you know who we are and we see here these guys, they're so they're unable to contend with the disciples on any level of truth that, again, they resort to abusing their authority and they're resorting to brute force. So they'd already had them arrested and jailed and threatened, and now they're going to have to kill them in order to silence them. Now, I have to think that this didn't quite go the way the apostles had hoped it would go, and yet... I don't think they were surprised at all right they went big even expecting the outcome because they were trusting in the lord and what we see next is that the apostles unexpectedly are about to find a very unexpected ally look what it says in verse 34 it says then one in the council stood up a pharisee named gamaliel a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So a man named Gamaliel now intervenes on behalf of the apostles. Now, Gamaliel was one of the most distinguished of all of Israel's rabbis. He was the grandson of the esteemed Hillel who was the founder of the most prominent school within the Jewish religious system. He was given the title uh, Rabban, which means our teacher, which was a step above Rab, which was another step above Rabbi. So Rabban is the highest title of respect that a Jewish teacher could could be given. He was a scholar, he was highly esteemed by the people. Gamaliel was very liberal in his applications of the law. He had a a far wider tolerance than some of his contemporary rabbis. For instance, he was one of the very few Pharisees who didn't regard all of Greek culture as sinful. He was very moderate in his stance and apparently much more moderate in the way he approached problems. Now, you may have heard his name before, because we'll see later that he was the teacher of this young up-and-coming rabbi named Saul of Tarsus, who would later, of course, become Paul the apostle. And in fact, we have good reason to suspect that Paul very likely would have been there with Gamaliel in this meeting because he was also a member of this council. And very likely, he was later the source for Luke, of this conversation that was about to happen as the apostles were sent out of the room. And in fact, it's probably Saul in this picture with Gamaliel that I got right off of Gamaliel's Instagram account. <laughs> so, Gamaliel, right? He's this brilliant thinker, he's one of the most influential leaders in all of Jewish history. So he stands up. He stops the proceedings. He has the apostle sent out. And he said to them in verse 35, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos uh, rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man... Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him and he also perished and all who obeyed him were dispersed. He says, hey, let's calm down. Let's just take a breath here and let's look at a bit of history because we've seen this all before. And then he points to these two past situations that he thinks kind of mirror this present movement, both of which, he says, came to nothing once the leader was dead and gone. He continues in verse 38. He says, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel was absolutely right, and he was absolutely wrong. So he hit the nail on the head with the second half of his advice, but he completely missed the mark on the first half. And unfortunately... What Gamaliel said here kind of sounds like some sort of divinely inspired logic. It's oftentimes even come to be quoted almost as a scriptural truth, but really this was no more, nothing more than worldly wisdom, and it was flawed at that. Because the Gamaliel principle basically says: if it's not of God, it won't succeed, but if it is of God, it will succeed. So we should just sit back and wait and watch and see what happens. And the fact is that this isn't at all a reliable way to judge what's from God and what's not. Because it's a false principle in this fallen world. Because it doesn't take into consideration either the sinful nature of man or the presence and the work of Satan. Gamaliel's principle will come true, but only when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and rules righteously here on earth. But for now, there are plenty of things that God hates that seem to be very successful, like worldwide false religious systems. Islam, Hinduism, drawing away millions from the truth. Or like the pseudo-Christian cults, right? Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Twisting and perverting the gospel. Or like the attacks against his church collectively or even against any of us as his children individually. We know that God hates these things and yet he's allowing them And we know that he even uses them in ways which we can't understand. There may very well be situations in your own life today, things that are coming against you or things that are very surely not of the Lord. Things that are, you know, of human instigation. Maybe they're even of satanic initiation, but they are very successful for the moment those things that they're saying about you or there are things that they're doing to you that aren't true, right? Rest assured, the truth will come out and it will prevail, but only in God's timing. And in the meantime, damage is being done, right? And the enemy seems to be very successful. It was Mark Twain who said that a lie runs around the world while the truth is still putting on her shoes, So in the end, God's truth will absolutely be victorious, but in the meantime, Satan can be very strong. And so Gamaliel essentially is proposing the test of time and that sometimes can be a good test, but more important than the test of time is the test of eternity. And for us here and now, far more effective than this sort of Gamaliel principle in evaluating whether something is of God or not of God. More effective than the Gamaliel principle is the Berean example. Now we're going to read more about them later when we get to Acts chapter 17. But Luke's going to write of them, the people of this city. This was their reaction to hearing Paul teach. It says that these men were more fair-minded in that they received the word with all readiness. And they searched the scriptures Daily to find out whether these things were so, and therefore many of them believed. Now, not to get a few chapters ahead of ourselves, but understand that the Bereans had just heard the teaching of the most famous apostle and theologian of the early church, this man who would be the human author of at least 13 of the New Testament books, and yet when they heard Paul speak, it says that they searched. The scriptures, they wanted to determine if the things that Paul was saying were truly biblical. And notice they didn't react saying, oh, wow, he's such a great and empowering speaker, right? Or, you know, it seems like a lot of people really like him. Or, you know what, when he speaks, I just feel good. You know, because that's probably why he has such a big following. None of that was important to them. All they wanted to know was, are these things so? Does this man teach the truth? And you notice that it was worth it to them to work hard to investigate what the word of God said and how Paul's teaching matched up with him. It says they searched the scriptures daily. So this is the way in our own lives, when we're confronted, you know, with needing to determine whether something is of God or whether something's not of God, does what they're doing, right, does their character and their life and their behavior, does that line up with the truth of scripture and does what they're saying and the things that they're teaching agree with what the Bible already says? What Gamaliel should have said was, hey, men of the council, let's investigate for ourselves. And if we find these men have a message that's from God, then let us also accept it with all of our hearts. It's kind of ironic because if Gamaliel was really afraid of fighting against God the way that he cautions here, then why didn't he honestly investigate the evidence? Why didn't he diligently search the scriptures? Why didn't he listen to all of the witnesses and then ask God for wisdom? This was the opportunity of a lifetime and Gamaliel chose to stay neutral. And that at its root is the heart of this underlying danger of his worldly advice here because no one can be neutral about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact is that to delay in making a decision is really just to court disaster. He was encouraging neutrality collectively when these council members personally were each facing a life and death issue that really demanded a decision. Because when it comes to the reality of the debt of our sins, and when it comes to the reality of the offer of forgiveness that Jesus makes, wait and see is not actually a neutral response, it's a definite decision. So we need to go big standing with Jesus. What Gamaliel was preaching was that false gospel of maybe someday. You've heard that gospel before, right? When it comes to Jesus, you may have heard it said, no decision is a decision. And Jesus made it pretty clear. In Luke 11, he says that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters Abroad And the members of the council, I have to think, even if they didn't know what Jesus said, they would have had to have sort of ringing in their minds at this point the words of the prophet Elijah. Remember after his victory there atop Mount Carmel, he says to the people in 1 Kings 18, he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. There was a decision to be made. And there are times when staying neutral means making kind of a quiet and maybe a fearful decision to reject that offer of salvation that God gives to us. And I don't think, I don't think it's an accident. If you look in Re- Revelation chapter 21, the very first group of people named among those who are going to now be separated from God for all of eternity is the fearful. The people who knew the truth, but they were afraid to take a stand. So don't be fooled by this seemingly wise sort of spirit of compromise and of tolerance and of acceptance that's all wrapped up here in the advice of Gamaliel. Because we need to go big and we need to stand with Jesus. Now what we do see... Is that even though his counsel was unwise and was dangerous, watch the way that God's about to use it to save the apostles from death. So, with this clever twist of bad logic, Gamaliel had convinced the council that there was really nothing to worry about. Verse 40 says, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Again, They have no tools left in their arsenal. All they could do was resort to this physical force and this brutality. Now, some might say here that the apostles got off easy. If you consider a brutal beating to be easy, then that would be true. Because this wasn't just a slap on the wrist. So the word that Luke uses there for beaten could also be translated skinned. So the beating that they received, even though it wasn't as harsh as the scourging, which Jesus would have endured before his crucifixion, but this is a beating that would still have stripped the skin off of their backs. And one historian wrote that this was not a soft option. People were known to die from it, even if this was exceptional. It was meant to be a serious lesson to offenders. And yet this beating was senseless, It was unrighteous. It was this unreasonable reaction from these hardened-hearted men. And this command that they gave to go along with the beating was as foolish as it was futile. Because they may have well ordered the sun not to shine as ordering the apostles here to keep silent concerning the name of Jesus. So here these leaders... Again, thinking, they had been so successful with it the first time, right? They thought that they could intimidate and discourage the apostles with a beating and a threat. But look what we read instead in verse 41 and 2. It says that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching, Jesus as the Christ. What else could they do? Right? Jesus had said in Luke chapter 6 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And their hearts were full of Jesus. And if our hearts are full of him, and if we really know him as our savior, we will want to tell others all about him no matter the cost. It was Churchill who said that a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And that's just what these guys did. They wouldn't change their minds. They didn't change the subject. Instead, they were going big every day and everywhere. Right? You get this sense that they just keep talking about Jesus wherever they went. Whether it's in the temple courts, Right, where they would have caught all of those established religion kind of people, right, exposing them to the gospel during their big public meetings, and they also met in homes. Right? These smaller, sort of more discipleship, these intimate meetings. So the early church, think about their schedule, right? They did Sunday mornings. They did a midweek regroup service. They did regular life groups. They did other kind of growth groups, just like we do. Right, because they were redeeming the time. They were buying up every opportunity. And these guys were meeting every day. And it says that they were both teaching and they were preaching. Now again, the, that word for preach is where we get our English word evangelize. So they were out there proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But that bold proclamation has to also be balanced with very steady instruction. Because we need to help sinners know how to believe, but we need to also help believers understand why they believed what they believed and how to then grow in that belief. And believers can't grow unless they're taught the word of God. And this is why Peter would later write about, he says, as newborn babes were to desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So we have tasted that. And now we want to grow so that we can help others also grow in that same grace of God given through Jesus Christ. Notice, that was the centerpiece of the message of the early church. It was Jesus Christ, him crucified That was their continued witness. That very name that the high priest couldn't utter. The very name that the Sanhedrin had condemned. And we'll get this sense as we go through in Acts. We're going to notice the early church didn't go around arguing with people about religion. They didn't go around condemning the religious establishment. They went around and they just told people about Jesus Christ. And they urged them to trust in him. Because like we saw last week, they wanted to add people not to the church, but they wanted people to be added to the Lord. That's why Paul would later write that we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, as we finally finish up this chapter, once again, I just get the sense that there's this, again, a new and a fresh outpouring of power and of witness as a result of what the apostles experienced here that neither the threats nor their arrests nor the imprisonment nor even the beatings had stopped them from witnessing for Jesus but if anything the persecution really only made them trust God more because they had opportunity for a greater experience of his power in their ministry now, no doubt when the apostles left, imagine how the Sanhedrin guys probably looked at each other and patted each other on the backs. They probably thought that they had won a great victory when we see that it was just another crushing defeat, right? It was the apostles, again, who were the winners here because they only grew in godliness because they had a chance to yield to the will of God, and they also had a chance to suffer like Jesus had suffered because they went big, because they were fanatical about Jesus and about the gospel. And really, shouldn't we be a little fanatical too? Because the gospel is good news in a bad news world. And Jesus Christ is the answer to every problem that we're facing. There's lots of people who are pretty fanatical about lots of different things, right? From political affiliation to environmental causes to social issues, celebrities, even sports teams, right? Chocolate, people can be fanatical about chocolate. Interesting, the word fanatic comes from a word that actually means mad, like crazy, right? Inspired by a deity. And the implication is that the person who's being described as a fanatic is insane with enthusiasm. I like that. Shouldn't we be insane with enthusiasm for Jesus? And what's so ironic is that in, in the world, it appreciates and it understands and it even applauds and it venerates emotion and enthusiasm unless it's in the realm of the spiritual and especially if it has anything to do with Jesus. And then it's very suspect all of a sudden. And we're accused of being wild or crazy or being some sort of extremists because we would say that the only hope for humanity, personally and collectively, the only hope for humanity is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they say we're crazy, and yet it's true. So let's allow ourselves maybe to be a little bit more fanatical about Jesus but to be fanatical about his love and about his mercy and to be fanatical about his ability to save people from danger, his ability to solve their problems, his ability to set them free from a a life burdened by sin and a life burdened by shame. So let's allow ourselves to be insane with enthusiasm for something that really matters. Allow ourselves to go big for Jesus. Go big for Jesus during times of trial and through our obedience. Go big with the truth of the gospel. Go big because we're always trusting in the Lord and we're standing with him. Right, We're doing it every day and we're doing it everywhere. Now, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And as I was praying about communion today, one thought came to my mind you know, as we reflect on his shed blood and his broken body, aren't we glad Jesus went big for us? Father, we thank you, Lord, for today, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, just to remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, Lord, as we consider going big, Lord, as culture would say for Him, Lord, how thankful we are that He went big for us. Lord, that He left nothing undone. Lord, that He accomplished everything necessary, Lord, and that now He sits enthroned at Your right hand. Lord, ever living to make intercession for us, Lord, and offering that same gift of forgiveness to everyone around us. Father, I I pray, Lord, as we we take these few moments, Lord, and we sing and we worship and we take communion, Lord, that it would be something that never becomes common to us, Lord, that it's not something that we simply do because it's the first Sunday of the month, Lord. But truly, Lord, you would uh, you would help us in our hearts to understand the great truth and the great reality of your great love for us. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.